This is a production of Cornell University. Yeah, w- welcome back, everybody. This is the, the fourth week of our Cornell Turf Show this year, seventh episode. Uh, we're excited to have Dr. Olga Kostromaitska uh, from UMass Amherst. Uh, Olga is a turfgrass entomologist. Uh, we're going to pick her brain today about uh, maybe some annual bluegrass weevil stuff, uh, where they're at, how they overwintered, possibly chinch bug things. Um, and, and Frank, I'm sure you'll have some questions there. Um, but as always, we'll start off with with Frank Rossi and a little bit of a weather recap and, and some recent events we, uh, we've been working on at the Cornell Turf team here. Thanks, Carl. <clears throat> you can hear me okay and see the slides? Yep. Okay, good. Uh, this, you know, in the background, again, big shout out to the Met and the Long Island superintendents. And we were with the uh, upstate superintendents, the GCSA and Y, uh, yesterday at Saratoga National, where uh, Joe wins the contest for the biggest tractor sprayer uh, I think I've seen yet in a turf operation that that used to belong to uh, Brookfield Country Club with that big monster that Adam out had out there. But this is this is the new winner. It was a, a great day yesterday, Carl. And before uh, we get going and I pass it off to you, uh, just a couple of funny tweets uh, with, with masters coming up and people out uh, swinging the golf club. Love these the yardage markers that they put out there uh, on the par fives. But of course, Carl, this wouldn't apply to you at all. Uh, there's no such thing as no chance for you. And with that, let me introduce you and have you go through the tip of the week. Yeah. So, so Frank, we've been running through these every week. This is part of our, our project with the P2I Center. Um, looking at golf course BMPs and, and trying to highlight these every week. Uh, and we've got a couple on this infographic poster that we've been focusing on the last couple of years. Uh, and they have, both have to do with longer vegetation on the golf course. And this can help you with water quality, um, helping filter some of those pollutants, sediments, nutrients as it's go- getting closer to a water body. Uh, it can also reduce our mowing and reduce our carbon footprint. Um, so there's a couple of statistics on this that we have. Um, based on how wide that buffer, we call these a vegetative buffer when they're around a water body, based on how wide that is, that can really decrease the sediment. In this case, 40 to 90%, the wider, the better. So if you have a 20 foot buffer, that's better than a 10 foot buffer. Uh, Yesterday, Frank, we actually discussed this with Joe Lucas at his field day. Um, He has water bodies that, that meander through the golf course, and he's actually tested those for water quality. Um, and as the water flow through, flows through his golf course, it gets cleaner. It has less sediment. It has less nutrient um, concentrations. And that's because he has these sort of vegetative buffers. Um, so wider is better and, and variety is better. So diversity in the vegetation uh, also helps with the water quality component. Uh, and then we have the mowing component, right? So over here on the right is a picture of Locust Hill Country Club when Rick Slattery was introducing some of these long grass, uh, we, we can call them native areas. There's a bunch of different terminology for them. Uh, but at its very core, you just mow it less. Instead of mowing that once per week as rough, you mow it maybe one to two times a year. And some of our data, but based on, on how often you mow it, what mower you mow with, you can save 100 to 400 pounds of CO2 emissions per year, per acre from, from these, uh, transitioning these areas from rough to long grass. And, and we might have a conversation today about how long grass affects uh, turf grass pests, but, but this is a really great way to start uh, thinking about these as a benefit to the environment, reducing uh, carbon emissions and, and improving water quality. And, and Carl, just to call you out here a little bit, uh, as we've developed the, the par birdie eagle approach, right? 
Uh, I wonder if you couldn't talk about why these long grass areas uh, are considered an eagle. It seems like stopping mowing uh, is is not so hard. And, and the buffer zones you got as a birdie, uh, you know, what's so hard about uh, not cutting the grass? Yeah, and the, the variable here that makes it hard, Frank, is the golfers, right? And the golfers, and we're going to see this at Augusta National this week, a lot of closely mown areas right down to water hazards. Uh, and at high-end golf courses where you want that sort of uh, the drama of a ball rolling, rolling, rolling down into the water. We like seeing that on TV. Golfers would like to have that at their golf course. They're not, they're not so happy when it's going in the water. Um, and, and when they get their ball into long grass, okay, they get frustrated. I can't find my golf ball. I have to drop it. I have to lose the golf ball. Uh, so that's the big, that's the big hindrance, right? The superintendents would love to do this, but there's an aesthetic component. There's a playability component that needs to be um, considered. And we've used some data. We'll talk about that maybe in a later turf show with, with our USGA friends and how you can use data to justify these areas. Uh, but that's really what makes these birdies and eagles. It's not the actual implementation. It's golf. Golf is a recreational component. And, and our golfers moving around the golf course is what prevents us from, from doing more of this. Perfect, Carl. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll look forward to that as, as we maybe talk more about the Deacon thing. But since you brought up data and yesterday at the Saratoga conference, uh, the walk and talk we had yesterday with about 35, 40 folks, um, Kevin Doyle, our GCSAA rep was there and made a shout out to provide uh, a response to the survey that's out. They're doing the third phase of the nutrient management survey, nutrient pest management survey. So this is where we can say that BMPs are working, right? By our more responsible use, and in many cases, lower use of these inputs, right? One would think that a lot of our BMPs are around using less. You can't know you're getting better if you don't measure things. So these are our contributions uh, to helping us benchmark an entire industry about the way we should be using nutrients. Uh, so big shout out. Thanks to Kevin for coming yesterday and everybody that supported us. Okay, so let's get to the nitty gritty and, and to our, our, our wonderful guests that will get to chat about uh, cr things crawling around. Before we get there, we'll start with the rainfall. Looks like last week had a fair amount of rainfall uh, in the two to three inch range through much of the Hudson Valley, Orange County, uh, Northern Jersey, uh, maybe not as much out on Long Island, but certainly through the valleys, the Pioneer Valley, the Hudson Valley, up through there, you're getting a fair amount of rainfall. And it looks like the Hudson Valley, the Capital District, the Adirondacks, all the way down to New York City is in for about a one to two inch rain period uh, into New England uh, through what? Through Monday. Looks like it's going to be wet through Monday. Artie Gaetano, Artie Gaetano uh, from the Climate Center told us this morning it looks like we're going to be ridgy, he says, which means we're on the ridge side uh, of the um, of the jet stream, which means warm and wet uh, weather is underway or on its way. Uh, last week, again, we were a little bit on the cooler side and we said this, right? Uh, some of the northern areas are on the warmer side, but overall, uh, normal or right around normal. And as we said last week, not a big degree day accumulation. So if you look at the uh, how we've accumulated since the middle of March, you know, we're right around normal, somewhere between 20 degrees, 20 degree days below and 20 degree days above normal. So that could be, you know, literally a day or two. But the forecast 
uh, is not very good moving forward. Again, single digit to low teens of degree day accumulation. So we're, again, looking at least in the near term, at least until the middle of next week, uh, a little cooler, but it appears that a warm up uh, is on the way. So the forecast is calling for a warm up, but looking at the soil temperature right now, you can see just a few weeks ago, we were in the low 50s and we're, we're creeping to get into the low 50s, even in the southernmost regions of New Jersey. So we're now we're back down into the 40s as a soil temperature, at least uh, as of yesterday. Um, for those of you fussing around with annual bluegrass still uh, and have seed head suppression or those of you who have stockpiled the embark. Uh, much of the no southern northeastern region uh, through the metropolitan New York area is is in the window or past the window of embark. A lot of our a lot of my friends that have some embark still check on this particular model and like it. Uh, this was actually the embark model we verified here in New York a number of years ago. So we feel really confident about that. And the proxy model now is indicating uh, almost everybody is in the ideal and early marginal stage, uh, except for the most northern region. So again, things are on pause, but if you're doing seed head suppression, there's still opportunities for this. Now, obviously you can't travel around the Northeast and being in the capital district, it wasn't hard to find some areas that still had some damage. This came off of a particular golf course that had some ball mark uh, annual bluegrass damage. You can see moving in in these areas. And on the left, you see it's starting to recover. When you look on the right, you can really see, let me get my pen here. You can really see, for, for, of course, for on the podcast, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But on the, on the video, you can see that these plants are all coming out of dead uh, material there. So you want to be really careful when you start to see the existing plants that might have looked dead a few days ago or weeks ago are starting to surge now, uh, the rainfall will be welcome. Sometimes these plants come up and don't have root systems. So keep an eye on them so that while you're getting leaf growth, you make sure you're getting those root systems because if you get dry, right? If you get dry and the damage to these plants is to the root cells, like we've talked about, you're gonna have a tough time uh, generating new plant material. So moisture, very, very important when you see recovery looking like this out of existing plants versus maybe new seedlings that are coming from seed. Now, here's a good example of some impacts that covers can have. So here you had the back of this particular green uh, greening up, uh, the front uh, not as green. And again, not that one is better than the other, but if you're encouraging recovery, you can see the impact that a permeable cover, a permeable cover on the right has. Now, it's so great this show, right? People, uh, I have colleagues uh, at Green Jacket is the uh, cover company in Minnesota. Gary Sullivan uh, sent us some data that's been collected from the University of Massachusetts from Dr. D Dr. DaCosta's work, Michelle DaCosta's work. Um, and this is the difference between certain uh, permeable and certain impermeable covers that actually can warm up. And one of the things that the green jacket uh, person was saying was that their impermeable cover maintains the temperature more moderately through uh, the green up phase. So you're looking here in March, right? Every two hours for nine days. And this is just looking at 
two days. And you can see the fluctuations under some types of covers versus others. And that a permeable cover that's maintaining that uh, dormancy underneath there, right, uh, gives you this advantage of not having to play the game of on and off. But if you're looking for recovery at this stage of the game, obviously the ability to drive up that temperature uh, is going to be going to be quite a bit more useful. Now, just say, you know, all the cool things on Twitter come from everybody doing a little bit of science on their own. So it's a golf course superintendent, I, I think down in North Carolina or Virginia or something, has taken a picture of this fairway over a period of time. Look at the difference between 2013 and 15. And here's the difference between 2020 and 2022, right? Just so that, you know, I would put these pictures up in the locker rooms if I had a club to say, hey, in, in case you forgot, you know, this is the variability that we're getting uh, under spring conditions. So it's, I, I think, a really good way to tell the story. Now, listen, as we get to our conversation for today, it starts with what a lot of people are doing nowadays, looking at the Greencast website, looking for what the scouting is saying. And right now, when I go in and log in at my uh, zip code, it's, it's telling me to wait for an application. Um, I've been looking at some uh, recent golf course management article that continues to highlight some different phenological indicators. Here's a particular hydrangea, Olga, that now we think might have some value. But the conversation for this morning, as we get to looking at you in a second, is about what's going to be happening soon. You know, what we've learned uh, about the adults emerging, when they're going to feed, when they're going to copulate on the left, and when they're, in this particular case, a really cool picture, where they put their eggs inside the sheath of the annual bluegrass plant. Now, this is, again, some work I talked about with Ben last year that you probably have some familiarity with about the average eggs, you know, how long they carry them, when they're laying them, uh, and how they're timed up with this, right? Because this is all about that spring emergence time. But at the same time, Olga, what I know you have a front row seat at is, okay, you've got a lot of people out there who the, who the adulticides, you know, might not work as well. And they're having to uh, go to the larvicide. And uh, maybe that is a better strategy as, as well. And so as I, you know, look at you and we start to chat about this, let's start with, the, you know, we're going to go through this whole thing. Oh, I just did in four slides. Let's start with where we are now in populations and uh, where we think some timings will be in the near term week or so. So where are we at in what the emergence data is starting to say? So, yes, we start already sampling from March 18. That's our first sample. And we start seeing them from March 18. And what we do, yeah, I described last year too, what we try to do second year, we try to progress in our sampling from the overwintering side and the fairways. So that's how we do it. If I got any weevils, if we collect, I try to dissect, see what, where they in the development, I continue to second year. And what I can say, in uh, we saw weevils already in March, mostly on the roughs. We didn't see them on the fairway. So this year, as you described with the weather pattern, I would call very usual normal year. 
And that's what how we started, like with weevils and everything. They start slowly progressing from the overwinter inside. And we haven't seen, and by the end of the March, we haven't seen them on the fairway yet. However, now, when we uh, start sampling last week and this week, we start seeing them on fairways already. And according to what I teach, at least, I see that the uh, forsythia should be in the full bloom when we start seeing the first weevils. I, I haven't seen this this year with forsythia anywhere close, similar to the last year. And so, so this one, we kind of need to a little bit review because I, I see the weevils, they still not in the full activity. You still see a lot of the rough still, they still coming, but the pioneers are already there. And when I dissected pioneers, females, they have eggs already form in there. Uh, the, yes, they have eggs, but the question, like you said, probably will take some time to mate and lay them, but they are fully uh, formed. Okay, and so listen, all right, so here's where I want to, okay, what I've learned from listening to all you smart people yeah. <laughs> about annual bluegrass weevil is that um, this is a time when um, I've got a single stage uh, yes, that shows their, uh, you know, that are out and about. Yes. That I can target. And yes. what I've been able to follow, and let's just stay on where normal adulticides will work. Let's stay off the resistance thing. Let's just say where you've got right. adulticides that will work. The the what I've heard you guys continue to stress is wait till the peak. Yes. Don't go early. Don't yes. make four apps before the peak. So, yes. you know, this is what I think a lot of people, ban you know, struggle with it. Is it too early? Do I want to miss it? So can you talk a little bit about a little bit of patience and waiting for the peak and some signals, obviously not for Scythia, but some signals that we're getting closer to the peak? Yes. The interesting thing with Scythia, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, that, uh, the peak actually pretty precise. It's the start of the activity. They cut uh, maybe not as good, but they have green, have gold, and it's pretty golden standard still. You know, like that's what I don't know this year, but definitely been years before. And about what uh, in this areas we talk about hundred growing degrees, maybe close to hundred, and that's where the peak. Why to wait for the peak? Because uh, look at the weather in the spring. Yeah, we have some with full eggs. They still need to have some time to mate and be ready to lay the eggs. But it's not all of that. It's just few. It's pioneers. So you don't want to put all your chemicals just to target a few. It's biological system. It's never will be 100% coming all on the fairway lay eggs all at once. So that's why we're looking um, scientifically where most of them will be there. And so far, it's been pretty precisely predicted by the degree days model and the forsythia blooming. Uh, like I said before, maybe it's not as precise with the start of the activity, but it's definitely precise with the when you try to do. Okay, so then, so then the next question is, I know the optimum time. Do I literally have to blanket the place or can I just spray fairways if I think... I have them in my rough, but it's not causing damage. Can I be a little bit more yeah. particular with where I treat so as to not have to treat 80 acres versus maybe 20? Yeah, absolutely. I always like stress what it should be fairway. You know, like that's like, there's two schools of use. You can do perimeter people do, but it doesn't mean what you spray everything. It's perimeter. 
a certain, you know, like you don't spray in the middle of fairway. And another school of thoughts, you have to spray uh, fairway only. I'm more inclined to suggest fairway only, don't touch the roughs. My, and some people really think what the perimeter works. I will not argue against that right now. I'm just saying why I do believe the fairway is better to treat. First of all, because that's their target destination. If they're going through the roughs, it's temporarily for them. They will be ending up on the fairway, right? So it's better to protect them. Uh, fairways. We don't want to protect the roughs because there will not lay eggs there. And second thing, sometimes that's what I noticed a couple years, then they could go in the middle. And if you don't spray the middle, you can end up not as great, obviously not the same damage as edges, but they still possible what you have if you have four in the middle, you might have some damage which you want to avoid. So that's why I wouldn't suggest uh, that's that's what I'm definitely for spraying the fairways. Is there any, um, okay, th that's perfect. Th this exactly the kind of answer we want, really site-specific stuff. But before I, I want to sort of take it to the putting surfaces now. Um, we got a lot of damage, Daniel Bluegrass, on the putting surfaces. Um, I don't know how palatable or unpalatable or if they even care. Uh, they obviously have to have sheaths to lay in, live sheaths to lay yeah, in. They yeah, they like it. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily uh, think they care. But collars, surrounds. Do I have to spray my putting surfaces, or can I loop my putting surfaces? That's a good. Uh, that's a good question. So I. <laughs> I don't know. I looping the pot and it's even for me has less uh, reasons. That's not only really. You do need to get the colors for sure because potting usually is not as big as fairway and just protect it. I think it's not that much more chemical and Perfect. they will definitely move much faster on the, uh, on the greens because it's a smoother surface and they much faster there. So if they on the greens, they will just go all over. So okay. that's like, maybe it's a new theory would you get them out, but I heard this last year, some damage on the green. So I wouldn't really. Yeah, we don't want you to take any damage. Yeah. Okay, I, I did, I did heard about the green damage last year. Okay, so here's what, again, you know, you, as an agronomist, I listened to this enough. And so I could have formulated in my head. And now I have this sense that try as I might, I'm going to miss adults. Either I have pyrethroid resistance I'm not addressing, or I'm missing the peak, and then I get into that asynchronicity. Um, yes. So let's talk uh, about uh, the importance of you know getting a peak, but also maybe if you've had a history, starting to already think about a larvicide. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe I don't want to go there first. What do I do if I got pyrethroid resistance in New York? without chlorpyrifos one more time. I know we talked about this last year. I want to hear from you again. What do I do without chlorpyrifos on my highly resistant pyrethroid population? So the rule of thumb, there is no adulticide. For resistance, even if you have immediate or moderate, if you have ever pyrethroid failure, just avoid because we don't have uh, chlorpyrifos. Even for resistance, it would be not effective anyways. So I would avoid adulticides for sure. 
because you will push the population, you will definitely not get as much control out of that. It's a waste of time and it's making even worse situation. So I would definitely avoid adult site. Here's other, several options there. Uh, we kind of try to throw here like a little bit early larva sites as one options. And for now, what we have the diamonds, uh, and if you have highly resistance, avoid uh, uh, chlorantronilipril. That's it's a celeprin, right? A That's celeprin. a celeprin. Yeah, it's, it's effective. And I hear that people say it's not a good vivo product. I wouldn't say it's, uh, in general, it's a good product. But if you have at least slightest resistance, the efficacy of this product, it's definitely decreases. So okay. we want, you want to go for uh, maybe a cyanotronilipron. And I think the new one what's registered with the tranilipron, they have some diamines which could work. So, okay. and then probably you can apply it. Uh, you see the peak of activity of adults and decide not to go and to do anything about that. So wait about two weeks and that's, you can basically start looking into applying this early larvicides. And okay. then, right. yes. And then if you go the later larvicides, it's rhododendron normal, our state is about, they will be 2.53 in stars. Then you have, entire shed of two shed of everything what you can apply so it's much easier there okay so let me go through this again because this is your recent paper this is the recent paper in golf course management that's addressing the the intersection of the pyrethroid resistant populations and the decision to go to adulticides and the impact that th that resistance has on the larvicides working yes Th that's what we're talking okay so you're saying uh, and I, I gotta forgive me. I'm not as good with some of the insecticides. Uh, a celeprin does not work as well as a larvicide when you've got pyrethroid resistance Absolutely. in the yes. existing in the population. Okay, yes. so that's the first thing that's important. There are others. You said cyanotrinopil and trinopil. Those are yes. what? Ferrance? Is that ferrance? and like what the trina the new one i I'm, i haven't done too much research with the trina and resistance so i wouldn't say it for sure so but definitely we learned that uh cyan chenilipril it does it's not effective the the ferrance is still will be effective for for larva and okay. another one and another one later which we found which didn't have pyrethroid resistance didn't have any effect on it's uh, spinosin spinosin yeah, spinosin right Okay, so let me go through this again because I'm hearing you say you have a lot of pyrethroid resistance. You can't even, you, adulticides, forget it. You, you're not going to be effective. You better, and you have to be more thoughtful about your larvicides and yes, early larvicide uh, activity is very impacted by resistance. But as you wait, I'm hearing you say, you have more possibilities because that resistance doesn't seem to be impacting them as much the later in the instar of the larvae. This is a very different conversation than I think I've ever had with an ABW person focusing on discrete larvicide timings. Uh, yes. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I think it's like start coming from like again. It's we did it in New Jersey, and when I was a postdoc, and it's kind of a the early larva sites we want to target first instar while they still in in the stems, and it's tricky obviously because the timing. But approximately, if you know your adult 
insecticide timing at the peak of the activity and you don't do it. So wait about two weeks, I would say, and that will be a good timing. So it's a little bit early, right, for, for these chemicals, but that's why we only apply systemic, and in this case, diamide, because nothing else is really good for veals. And after, Afterwards, if you this will be one window opportunity, and the second window opportunity when they start coming out, they're still not really big, they just start coming out from the stems, start feed, feeding on the crowns, and then about the same chemical, still pretty good. Plus, you have uh, spinosad, which we can add, and other chemicals somewhat affected. So, if you have really highly resistant population, basically it's between diamines and spinosins, and that's basically it. But if you have last level of resistance, still susceptible, then you have uh, other things like indoxicarb, which could be used. Um, Maybe I, I don't remember too many OPs for that because we tried to stay away from them anyways. Yes. But, yeah, yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, but we okay. do have some more things available. Yeah. Okay, so listen, before we get out of here, Carl, we're gonna we're we're already at the hour, so I, I want I got one more for sure, unless there's any from the audience. How worried are you? Okay, you're basically suggesting that once you get resistance you better be almost thinking about it with a history of damage Two potentially two larvicide applications. One, two weeks after your peak adult timing emergence, and you think really confidently that's half green, half gold, about a hundred growing degree days, right? Yes, right. And, uh, and then how much longer after that, because this isn't easy to scout for. It's different than the adults, right? This is a little trickier to scout for, isn't it? Yes, the the larvicides basically, especially for the early larvicides, it's tricky timing because you're relying on your adult presence, right? And maybe the growing degree days around 200, right? But for for the most part, you you cannot, you will not see them. Even like I, I usually like you can use all the tools available for you out there to which I sample every day too. And like, but uh, but that's what approximately timing because the first instar larva, you will not see them in the soil. Even if you sample with the salt extraction, not likely you'll see them because even for me, I need some, like I have an eye for them, but for people who don't, they need magnification. And uh, like now we even switched, uh, like, like Ben was like the pioneer in that. We switch from the salt solution for, for the early larvicides, we switch to the Verlisi final extraction because they come in and it's easy to see them. It's not as much uh, trash. Unfortunately, I had not really good uh, uh, experience detecting the larger larva like that. So we have to go mm. back to the salt for the larger. But uh, okay. yeah, so, so yes, it's basically relying on approximately 200 of the growing degree days, two weeks from the adult activity, but something like that. Okay. All right, Olga, thank you so much. This is, I, we could chat about this for another half an hour for sure, because as the resistance comes up and the challenges come up and, you know, we still have annual bluegrass. And even if this thing, you know, doesn't like annual bluegrass, it'll find something else to feed on. So appreciate you keeping up this great work. <laughs> I don't want to open surgical units at golf courses to start dissecting annual bluegrass feed. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's a lot of tools for you guys to available there to just see the timing and suggestions what and when should be applied. So yeah, it's great. Uh, ah, good work. Keep up the great work. Carl, get us out of here.
Yeah, thanks. Thanks to, to Dr. Kostromaiska for joining us today. Um, thanks again, as always, Frank. It's been the seventh episode this year of the Cornell Turf Show. Tomorrow, we're going to have Ben Palmer on to talk uh, early season sports field management. So we'll have Another uh, we'll Massachusetts. Another, we're going total Massachusetts this year. We're spending a lot of time near Boston, Frank. We're getting dangerously <laughs> close to uh, all these Red Sox folks. <laughs> Everyone lot, take care. We'll see you soon. See you guys. This has been a production of Cornell University. On the web at cornell.edu.